Welcome to We've Got War, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss war while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Eins, and as always, this is my co-host, Zwe. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bull's world of eggs, eggs, and alien-based death eggs as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we're continuing Arc 12 Heavens with chapters 12.5 and 12.6. Victoria executes Operation Bitch Slap Rain till he wakes up and then uses the slightly enraged cape to boil Cradle's egg in guilt and regret. I see no flaws in this plan at all. Matt, what did you think of these two chapters? Well, this is the egg-centric content that I come to this story for, <laughs> as, as you know. Um, really good stuff. And, you know, we, we've got two Victoria chapters. Um, we, you know, we've been having so many interludes lately, which it's really kind of I always see interludes as a treat. Yeah, but it, it's it's funny that I'm, I'm sort of I sort of see the opportunity to just do two Victoria chapters as almost a different kind of treat because it's, it's more <laughs> of like a, a focus on um, on just the through line of what's going on with Victoria. Yeah. I mean, the interludes are always um, kind of by their very nature, more dense chapters. Um, so it's they're. Our episodes have been creeping up in length because of it, um, because we've been doing a lot of interludes and they've been important interludes. So I am just like you excited to just do two, you know, standard Victoria chapters. There's a little bit of fighting. There's um, a lot of character work going on here. There's a lot of good stuff, but it just doesn't seem like it's quite as dense. So maybe we get to focus on some of the writing more than just um, talking about the stuff that happens. Um, yeah. And I'm looking forward to that conversation a lot. Me too. All right, some announcements. Yeah, so Scott, what's what's uh, going on with your March Madness tournament? Yes, March's Madness is now in round two. Um, we've gotten through the, the first 64 of our char- characters. Those were eliminated. 32 of them are dead. Rest in peace, all those sweet, sweet people. Um, we only have 32 left, so we're in round two right now. Um, we are going to be covering the results of round one as well as uh, all the round two picks uh, at the end of the show. But... We wanted to remind you guys that voting for round two is open right now, so you can head on over to doofmedia.com slash March Madness and vote for the round two picks. That'll be open until this Sunday at about uh, midnight Eastern time. So go vote in those and and we'll keep covering this as we go. The other thing we said, um, there's a way to leave comments on the polls. And when we go through the results of this round next week, um, we'll read some of the people's comments that they left as they were trying to decide between some of these characters because it's getting it's getting harder, Matt, and people are having are struggling with this more and uh, we wanted to give them an opportunity to comment on the things that we're forcing them to vote on. So, so go yeah. do that. Yeah. By the way, it's, it's not uh, who would win unless you want it to be. Right. Um, you know, it's like, obviously Contessa just wins the whole thing. If it's, if it's a, <laughs> yeah, if it's a, who would win anyway. Um, uh, I, I wanted to remind everyone uh, to go check out deep impact. If you haven't yet, and if you haven't read Pact. Then go read Pact, obviously, 
And yeah. if you're not sure about those, then maybe listen to an episode of Deep Impact, and then and then you'll say that sounds really interesting. I'll go I'll go read Pack now and catch up, and then you'll be hooked. Yeah, and, and there, that's how it works. I, I caught up. Well, I didn't catch up because I'm not. Um, but I've read through about an arc and a half of Pact, and I caught up on all the the podcast episodes uh, today, and um, it's really enjoyable. And they do it in like. Like they're only doing a chapter at a time, so it's like half hour chunks. So it's not these long marathon episodes that we have. Um, it's just little half hour chunks of episodes, and it's it's kind of easy to just set aside a little bit of time to do um one at a time and catch up like I did. So yeah, I, I'm enjoying the show. I'm enjoying the book, and we want you guys. We our our buddies are doing some great work, and we want you to check that out. Yeah, you're right. Much more disciplined in in terms of time yeah. than those we've got ward guys. How do they do that? I don't know. We should ask them. <laughs> All right. Let's get into uh, 12.5. All right. And we we return to Victoria, re-witnessing several of the scenes that we observed via her shard in the previous interlude. She inwardly seethes and imagines tearing down the building on top of the enemies within, perhaps connecting with the idea that she stands on a ledge at risk of becoming a tyrant. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that's part of what um, what led the shard to, to going down that point of view. And that's, I think one of the things I want to focus on here at the very beginning of this chapter is because from the start of this section until pretty far into like almost a fourth of this chapter, maybe even more, we're just seeing uh, the opening part of 12 dot all play through, but this time from Victoria's point of view. Right. So yeah. um, basically up until the point where Victoria says, I have a plan and points at chastity that we've all seen this before in the last chapter. And I think it's pretty clever because I think this allows us to like very clearly and concisely draw a line between the parts of Victoria that the shard is aware of or paying attention to and the parts of Victoria that the shard is not as paying as much attention to. And yeah. I, I think that's just a clever device to kind of to make that very clear. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, in, I, I almost read it as like um, she's having a lot of her own thoughts and then she's having conversations with people and the shard is is sort of passively aware of what's happening but not really paying a ton of attention and then it's going off on its own little philosophical ruminations in a very victoria way uh which i which is just even more delightful in retrospect yeah i mean there's a whole conversation that she has with sveta in this chapter that the shard didn't make any note of at all um because it was completely unconcerned with with any of that going on um but yeah we, we talked last week about how being with Victoria might have humanized the shard a little bit. And I still definitely think that's true, especially as compared to what we saw in March's shard. Um, but humanized doesn't mean human, right? And and there's one of the things we see right away here is Victoria is frustrated. She's angry. She's talking about destroying things. Like she wants to rip through the building and just destroy the egg. And that anger was not translated by the shard, right? At all. Like we, we felt no, um, like we felt no intensity of emotion like that from the shard's point of view that we see from Victoria here. So while it is in tune with her thoughts, um, it it is either unable to or unconcerned with like some of her emotional resonance here. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. um, And, and, but I think we do see parts like, I think like there are parts here when she's talking about like wanting to destroy it. um, When she's talking about, she says she wants to take the egg he'd made to be uncrackable and take it apart, figure out how to, figure it out how to unravel the riddle. There's parts of these moments that you can almost see where the shard translated it into her, like her general, like inquisitiveness and her, um, 
dedication, right? Like those are the two things it mentioned about her that no matter the label, these are two things that Victoria is about. And in the very part of this chapter, we're having her go through this kind of angry rant where she's like, I wish I could do this. I wish I could do this. I wish I could just crawl, crawl into a burrow, a ball and cry. Um, but I can't, I can't do any of that. I have to like, and, and that's, it's, it's not like the shard was not in tune or not paying attention to that thought process, but it still got to kind of the same place where it's talking about the, the, the two, the two traits that define her more than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, uh, you know, we were talking about this before J maniacs interpretation of the shards as the reader and, and how like we, we're kind of, um, like the protagonist sort of becomes yours, right? Like that, that's, that's our Victoria. That's our Victoria. You know, she's totally, <laughs> she's totally indefatigable right. and, um, and we're, we're proud of her, you know, like, like we know she's going to take a minute. She's going to be rocked by the horror of what she's seeing, but then she's going to rally and, and she's, she's not going to be swayed from her course. And, and we love that about her. And then here we have her shard thinking those same things. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, we've talked about the, uh, J maniacs video before on the show, right? I think so. I think we have. Yeah. I, if not, then check out J maniacs videos about metatextual elements and parahumans. The more I read this book, the better I like that interpretation of the story. And I don't think it like, I, I don't necessarily think this is the intended read of the story, but I don't really care like intended or not. Like, I think it just, it yeah. slots in perfectly. And like, especially the more we sit with the shards and more we see like, it's like reading over, 12 dot all again last week really like i I love it it's so cool it's so interesting it's a fun really interesting way to look at the the story and and again it is talking about the power of storytelling and and the purpose of storytelling in a way that i like because i like those things so whenever there's an interpretation that talks about hey storytelling matters um i i tend to i tend to gravitate towards those interpretations so yeah me too anyway completely distracted but um I, i i definitely was thinking that as i read through these chapters yeah. So faced with the egg-shaped cocoon of preserved flesh holding cradle, her mind goes through possible solutions, biology powers, considering Chris, uh, and then inevitably skipping off the consideration of her sister. A, a bit later, she'll think of a list of other capes like Blasto, Rottenfanger, Jerky Meat, uh, James Towner as being non-options. Yeah, and it's interesting here that she's kind of like combining the two things she's primarily worried about right now, right? Like she's looking at the egg and she wants a solution to that, but also in the back of her mind, she's thinking about Sveta and her, her problem and how she has to solve her problem. And that's actually when she lists those four capes, she's thinking about, could they make a body for her? Um, and, and it, she still calls them non-solutions, but, um, I really like this. Like there's, (laughs) there's this, this part that I love, um, she she says as you're talking about like she skips through her sister right and she goes she goes these she gets through this kind of circular thought process in her head right where she, it ends up back to her sister and she, she kind of chastises herself about being getting in that circular view process but um she goes back to that non-solution that was my sister and i think there's there's a little bit of reading in there i think that like there's this line earlier a couple couple sentences earlier that says my thoughts briefly settled on Chris Labrat. They touched on other alternatives and she never goes into what those other alternatives are, 
But I think the implication there is that she actually is thinking about her sister there because then the later line is back to the non-solution that was my sister. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like you kind of see her thought process of skipping over over Amy. Um, but then that that avoidance technique failing and actually landing on her. Yeah, right. I mean, and it, the, all the problems she's facing, many of the problems she's facing <laughs> are ones that Amy uh, is like most capable of solving of anyone in the world. Right. Um, but she, she's just, and, 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 and it like now at least we're, in, we're at a part in her character arc where she's able to think about that for a second before rejecting it instead of just yeah, failing true. to think about it at all. Yeah. But still, um, still not an option. Yeah. Still not an option. Right. Um, we'll see how long it remains not an option when other people realize that it's an option. Yeah. But th- there's one thing I wanted to talk to you about, um, in this in this moment of her chastising herself for this kind of circular spiral of getting caught in in a, in thoughts, um, she talks about how she recalls that she used to do this a lot, you know, when she was starting out, and that there was a dream from her very early days of caping that she would just have again and again and again. Uh, it says trying to solve so- to save someone who'd fallen from a high place. I'd fly after, grab their hand, only to find it so slick with blood that it slipped out like a wet bar of soap. And the person would fall, and she would fail to catch them, and then this dream would repeat over and over and over again. And I I, I love this, because dreams in stories, like, to me, are always like a sign of, whenever I see a dream in a story, I'm like, pay attention to this. This is important. Because dreams in real life are sometimes just nonsense, right? Like, like we, some, like, we can't control what we dream about. And sometimes it's just stupid nonsense. It doesn't matter. But, um, in stories, they matter normally. Yeah, right. I mean, right, right, right. Sto- yeah, the, the, the author chose to put it in there. Right. So, yeah. A story is already a place in which everything in the world matters in some extent, because that's, it's all part of constructing the story. But then you put a dream in the story and the dream matters as well but it doesn't have to play by all the logic rules of the world you can like do whatever with it you can show whatever you don't have to construct any kind of imagery around um around the logical rules of the world you can just do whatever you want um so it has power it has power to convey messages there and i think in that line of thinking i always like jump into the dreams that characters have and really want to inspect them and and i did that here and i don't even know like how much this matters (laughs) to like the overall direction of the story right now but i just thought it was really interesting and worth worth examining a bit sure absolutely so like on 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 the very surface level of this dream we see here victoria is dreaming about her failure like dreaming about her perceived failure to save someone again and again and again she's swooping down she's trying to save them and she fails uh the blood is coating their hand it makes them her unable to get a grip and they slip and fall now you could say that the imagery of blood these people are covered in blood is her failure on a larger scale, right? Because she's failing, there's blood everywhere and that's only compounding her failures. And it's just like failure everywhere and everything. But Matt, blood on hands is a very coded image in, in life, not even storytelling. It's expanded into life, right? Like we, we use the idiom, there's blood on my hands all the time, all the time. And in that vein of thinking, I think this gets even more interesting because it's not Victoria's hands that have blood on them, right? She's, you would think if, if she's looking at this dream as something of like her own personal guilt, right? This is, I'm, I'm guilty. I feel like I'm failing to save these people. Um, you would, you would think the normal way to convey that image would be there's blood on her hands. 
she's uh-huh. failed these people. It's not what it is, though. So it's almost as if saying, while Victoria is failing to save these people, yes, um, they're all guilty of something. Is it they, yeah. is it their own blood on their hands? Is it other people's blood on their hands? Is um, is Victoria so ineffective at saving the world because each and every person she's trying to save is responsible for hurting another person? Can a world in which everyone is guilty, in which everyone has blood on their hands, even be saved? And I love this as like a little encapsulation of of Victoria at the time, but maybe just our, of Victoria in general, right? Of her view of yeah. this whole thing. I mean, it's very interesting because like on a symbolic, you know, story level, Amy is a person who has red on her hands perpetually because she's right. tattooed right. red on her hands. Um, and so Amy like figuratively has, has blood on her hands at all times. Um, but that's not what it meant in the dream because that happened after the dream. But that, right. but like that was is a story, so things can mean <laughs> things that don't necessarily make sense, right? right. Um, but it, it's all, yeah. That that that's really interesting, and I like that interpretation. That it's not just, um, you know, it's not just, uh, it's not just. Uh, I tried to, I tried to save them, and they, and they fell out of my hands. It, it's I tried to save them, and their hands were too too slick with blood. And in a sense, you know, her, she's kind of trying to save her team, right? Right. Like, that was her mission from the beginning was I need to help these guys, Jessica. And many people in her team can be said to have blood on their hands or at least be guilty of something bad, even if they didn't hurt anyone specifically. And can she save them? You know, are are their hands too slick with the, with the blood of what they've done that she can't actually save them? Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. I think you're absolutely right. And and that, that, that actually makes me happy because it, it means that I didn't just completely waste my time <laughs> diving down this rabbit hole of exploring this one sentence of dream that we have here. Because I think that does tie into, you know, how Victoria views what she's trying to do and and her existence and and her general frustration with the world. Right. Like we like she is she is trying to save the world and she's so frustrated that the world like stops itself from being saved. And I think that is that image is there in that dream. Yeah, I think you're right. It's pretty pretty cool, actually. I'm glad I'm glad you pulled that out because I didn't take it on anything other than a, uh, you know, okay, yeah, it says something about her character, but it's, it says quite a lot, actually. Yeah. I think if you if you draw it out, every whenever it just, I think it's just general rule when you're reading a book, if dream happens, perk up your ears a little bit or your, yeah. your eyes, I guess. Um, pay attention a little bit more because I, I think the authors like to do things with those dreams, and and even if. Even if they're not doing it, like even if that was not the intended uh, explanation of the dream, right? I still think it it can say something, and right. I think it's because of that lack of logical rules that you need. It's like it's like it's, a free yeah. reign within a construction story, constructed story. Yeah, I think you're right. So now she talks to Sveta, and they agree that there isn't an obvious solution to this problem that they're facing with the egg. And she thinks about how well this situation aligns with. Uh, basically what she missed out on back when the slaughterhouse nine were ravaging Rockton Bay, um, specifically in the sense of, of the enemy's willingness and even eagerness to do harm and to be monstrous. Yeah. And I really love this because so much of this chapter, and I think indeed this entire arc is about what can we do? We finished off the last arc with this decision seemingly made Victoria made up her mind. She decided, okay, we're going to kill cradle. We're going to kill March. And, and 
if anyone that assists us assists them that gets in our way, we're going to kill them, too. But that doesn't make it easy, right? You've made that you've made that choice. You've made that decision. But that doesn't mean like everything's just easy now, because now what now? What do we do when innocent people are involved? Like and, and I don't like there's there's hundreds of soldiers in this this compound now. And yes, not all of them are innocent, but some of them are less guilty than Cradle and Love Lost and uh, and March are right. So like, do we just kill all these people? Is that like we've decided we're going to kill everyone, anyone that's allied with them? We can just get to kill all of these people now. Can we kill all these people? How do we win when we're fighting against a force that is able to be this brutal? And this is when I get back on my Lord of the Rings quoting, Matt, where I have to quote Lord of the Rings every one of these episodes. But like, yes, I'm reminded of the, the Theoden line where he says, what can men do against such reckless hate? Right. And that's kind of the thing that they're stuck with here is like, how how do we win in a way that doesn't make us completely lose ourselves in in a situation like this? Um, it doesn't have an easy answer. There's no there's no Gandalf coming to save them over the, the to crest the ridge and charge down and save them all. Right. Like you're stuck here with your tough choices and your difficult situations. And what are you going to do? And yeah. I love it because in this moment, Victoria is like, this reminds me of the Slaughterhouse Nine. And I was so mad and I felt so guilty that I couldn't have been there to be see that fight to the end. And then she says, well, wish fucking granted, Victoria. So it's a sign like, like, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been helping and fighting and doing all this stuff. It's like, well, you're here now and you're realizing how fucking difficult this is because none of it's easy. None of it. Yeah, right. It's It's almost like she's never quite faced up to... Like she's always wished, you know, she spent all that time in the hospital. She she has always wished that she could help specifically help fight against the monsters. And now she's right. in one of these situations where it's like, there's the monster right there. And uh, I don't know if you've actually considered how this would feel in this <laughs> right. moment, Victoria. And it's it's hard. It's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've talked about how Victoria is very much the type of person that she feels most comfortable when she has a clearly bad guy in front of her to punch, right? Like it's when things are the least gray, when it's obvious, like I, good guy, that bad guy punched them really hard and to win. Um, and she's in a situation where in theory, it's never been clear, right? Cradle clearly monster, clearly bad guy, clearly guy that we probably need to kill. And yet even in that moment, you're not going to get that that easiness. You're not going to get those easy decisions. You're like, it's it's complicated. All this stuff is complicated. Yeah, you know, it's in, I, I can't help but but think about how Cradle is not similar to the Slaughterhouse Nine because, yeah, making a sphere out of people is something that Bonesaw might do, but she would be like laughing and like talking about how clever an idea it was and how artistic it was. <laughs> And it like it would be fucked up in that specific way, whereas Cradle is basically just like, well, this solves the immediate problem that I have, and yeah, and, and yeah, he 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 wants to hurt the people who he's doing it to, I think. But like like yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying one of those approaches is better than the other. I'm just distinguishing that they're two different brands of being a monster. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think I think she's less looking at. I think she's less. I think she's more looking at like the result of yeah. their monstrosity and not the sure the underlying reason or or enjoyment of the monstrosity but yeah i, I think, get what you're saying yeah no i think you're exactly right and and th- the fact is that 
when you're looking at an egg made out of human flesh, out of living human flesh, um, you're not thinking about like the motivations of the person necessarily. You're just like, yep, that's not going to be allowed. Yeah, whether or not Cradle is getting uh, any kind of enjoyment or glee from the thing he's done doesn't matter in the moment, right? It's we have to we have to stop this person and yeah this bone saw person yeah anyway yeah so victoria returns to the heroes and they discuss strategy there's an interesting discussion of the russian system of organizing squads of soldiers around capes with mark providing a lot of commentary because he had a friend who was one such cape soldier and then victoria providing the normal amount of knowledge gleaned from research that we count on from her yeah and i I love that interaction that kind of dynamic right because victoria is giving the book knowledge textbook understanding and mark is filling in like the the color he's 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 personifying these people um this is these are these are human beings right and they're human beings that happen to be on the other side of our heroes right now um and we're kind of understanding how they operate as a group through Victoria's knowledge. But I think Mark's knowledge helps define who they are and maybe why they are the way they are. And, and maybe talks about how like the, the way that the group is structured, that there's not like that they are soldiers and not every single person is necessarily completely bought into the thing they're doing or was even able to, to agree or disagree with the, uh, the the person that they're working for mm-hmm. and I, I think that that all gives color to this group that they're about to go up against and and kind right. of makes you understand why our characters w- would be super resistant to just murder them all mm-hmm. yeah right i especially love this part where they talk about you know, like some of the sometimes the group of people that surround the cape feed into kind of their pathology in a way that makes them even worse yeah it, it's like it's like not only do you get the standard package of capes coming along with everything that's wrong with them, but uh, they come with their own group of enablers there. Yeah, yeah. That, that just like make everything worse for them. And like I can see pros and cons to that, actually, like from from a from a powers point of view. Um, but yeah, <laughs> definitely something to think about um, uh, in the in the combat in the combat aspect of things. I feel like from a powers point of view, it's all cons. Or, well, I guess all, I, like like for for the survival of the species, <laughs> for the, it's all I mean, everything about powers is a con, right? But I was <laughs> I was more thinking specifically like people who are more aligned with their shard tend to be stronger, and if you're surrounded with a lot of people who are going to like push you yeah. to your worst all the time, then you might that that might make you functionally stronger, but sure. you know also in kind of a brittle way where you're going to go crazy and kill everybody eventually, so. Yeah. Yeah. Like, for example, if some guy like comes up and looks like shoots energy beams of emotion at you, you might just like shove a drill into your coworker. Yeah. That kind yeah. of stuff. S- things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of discussion of the specific capes who are present um, who or, or who they suspect are present. And they're people we know very little about. So basically what this part of the text is doing is it's priming us to understand what the team is going up against. Um like specifically, there's this there's a cape called Macade. I don't know how you say that actually. I don't know if that's an actual word. Maybe you should have looked that up. Uh, who has a centipede thing, and they're apparently quite young. So like that we're you know these little details are being fed to us. And there's also Barf Bat, who we remember from the Citrine interlude. Yeah, a, a Macade is like a Japanese 
centipede so ah cool there you gotcha. go yeah yeah i mean i think this is important like we're going to talk about next chapter about um how how well Wildbow does in setting the stage and getting us to understand each and every one of these characters in a, in a scenario that is uh a lot of people right we're about to like the the, the next the next chapter has a lot of different people, a lot of different things going on. And, and the fact that we spend time defining who some of these people are, uh, ends up being really important, but more on that, uh, next chapter. Yeah. But, so um, I guess if, if it's, it's probably Mukade, if it's Japanese. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. yeah. So there is a moment here that I think is worth talking about for a bit, Matt. Um, this is kind of a reaction to the, um, to the parahumans, uh, subreddit and and the community um there's a bit here where as they're trying to talk they're they're looking at different capes and they're identifying them based on their costumes and rachel points out that sometimes people switch costumes take the guy you like least and make him wear the costume instead he'll draw attention and several people in the community have have looked at this and looked at the fact that rachel does have a pretty close friendship with vista and and this moment happening in the chapter after vista had died and they're using this as evidence that's saying Maybe we're like subtly setting up this fact that uh, Vista wasn't in the Vista costume and that was somebody else that died um, and it wasn't her that March killed him, which like that would mean that Vista was also in the city and then like watched and like the second uh, her her clone or her uh, distraction friend got stabbed, she like took her power down. Yeah, um, I mean, the the group of people who Rachel fought who used that trick in the past uh, included Vista. Right. <laughs> so that is a plausible theory. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, No, I hadn't heard this before, I actually. I, so. I don't like it. This is dead, guys. Vista's dead. I'm sorry. Um, I, don't, I don't know, Scott. Now I have a glimmer of hope. <laughs> See, that's why people have, have glommed onto this thing, because that's what they want. But I, look, here, here's what I find more interesting about it, though. Um you are right that Rachel knows that Vista is part of the group that has used this before. And what I think is more likely is Rachel is processing the fact that Vista might be dead, right? They, they watched on TV as the city unfolded. Um, thus everyone jumped to the conclusion that Vista was probably dead. She knows Vista might be dead and perhaps in her head, she's working through excuses for why she might not be dead, right? Like she's trying to, pro well, maybe, maybe they did something like this. Like we're trying to come up with excuses for why this character we cared about um, isn't dead. Maybe that was on her mind too. And then, so they're talking about capes and, and they're trying to match people by capes. And there's this thing that's on Rachel's mind. And she goes, oh yeah, I know about this thing that I know some other capes did where they switch costumes. Um, I, I just, that I, there's no there's no textual support for that at all. Um, I just think it's interesting that people glommed onto this thing and then you could kind of warp it to where those people are right, except for the part where Vista's definitely dead. I'm so glad Vista's not dead. <laughs> no, no, Matt. Thanks, everyone. No, Thanks Matt. for letting me know. No. I'm going to move on from here. <laughs> happy. I'm happy now. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, I like I like that. I like that that was Rachel's contribution too, because like that's totally a thing that she would add to that conversation, even if even if it weren't for the Vista uh, uh, hypothesis. Sure, sure, yeah. So yeah, the, um, there's this, this interesting paragraph where Victoria thinks that she might uh, know what the long term goal of the villains is. I'm going to read the paragraph. So it says, "I had a bad feeling that I knew what their long term was. 
I might not have connected to it if I hadn't seen Ashley and the Harbingers or if thoughts of Bonesaw and some of the other sketchy biomanipulators bio hadn't been so close to the surface of my thoughts with Sveta's issue. Um, so like when, when my, when I first read this paragraph, my mind immediately went to Amy. Like these are all sort of, sort of concepts that circle around Amy. Um, uh, the, the, and then the implication being that the, the villains are going to want to capture or corner or co-opt Amy somehow. But on a reread, I'm, I'm less sure that it's that specifically. And I, I have some other ideas, I guess. But what do you think? Yeah, I don't think it's too crazy that your mind went there because Victoria is a very Amy centric person. So um, thinking about a plan involving bio manipulation going to Amy in her head is not too crazy of a thing to think about. Um, but let's let's uh, let's try to break it down and see if we can come to a conclusion here. And I I don't know if I'm like have any kind of real answers, but let's look at it because she says the two things that make her develop what this long term feeling is. The first one is Ashley and the Harbingers. Um, so clones, right? Powered, cloned people. Um, but maybe there's something more specifically here because it's not just the Harbingers, it's Ashley and the Harbingers. So maybe she's talking or thinking about how Ashley interacted with them. So like this, this, we, we talked a lot about this familial bond that we saw last week and the week before between these guys and why they're kind of grouped that way. So maybe it has something to do with that. I don't know. Um, and maybe that points toward Amy, right? Cause she's got like, like familial bonds on the mind while also thinking about biotinkers. Um, but then also the fact that thinking about Sveta's problem makes her thinking about bone saw specifically, and then all the other sketchy biomanipulators. So those two things, I, I don't, I don't know if that actually helped us clear anything up. Well, I mean, what it pops back into my mind is basically, um, things that Victoria hasn't witnessed, but we have like bone saw saying to Amy, like, Hey, we could stitch together a hundred capes and make our own like inbringer <laughs> monster with a right. hundred powers and, and, and kill an inbringer. And, and then people would be like, well, now what? And that has always been something that has been like feasible in this setting. Right. Right. Like, and, and that's even sort of what teacher was, was hinting at at the end of a worm was being like, we can, we can leverage, the, the capabilities that we have to sort of rebuild something like what Scion was except under our control. And that's all of this sort of taken together. You know, you have the capability to clone, which means you can resurrect dead powers. You have the capability to mash together multiple powers into one person, which, um, which Bonesaw has done already, even without Amy. Yeah. You so have the capacity to change powers like, like if you have all these resources under your control, you could, you could do whatever, right? You could like do whatever from the perspective of like rebuilding shard network, all kinds of things like that. Yeah. And it, so like biomanipulators are the pathway to doing that, right? Cause that's, there's no such thing as like a shard manipulator, but, but the biomanipulators can basically do those things anyway. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things about this whole thing is, is the question of, what are the clones in relation to shards, right? Like are the two Ashley's operating from the same shard? Like how, how did that work? You know, like how did, when, when, when they, when a clone of someone was made, how did that work on the shard side of things? And like, are, are all the harbingers 
five separate shards or just all part of the same shard and that's its own kind of mini shard network through the boys themselves like like that's a big mystery and, and something we don't know so i mean that seems like an interesting examination of this whole thing too we're, we, we were talking about this idea of network of community of the shards wanting to be part of this big overarching network that's gone um and and yeah i mean we're talking about these things that we don't quite know the answers for yet um and it it certainly makes your mind think about the horrible horrible possibilities yep uh i mean i always assumed they were all tapping into the same shard but, i think um, that's the most logical right um, yeah i mean that, that that's also why we see like uh, identical twins have almost exactly the same power usually because right. they're it's like a one charge just being like all right we can't keep track of this so you both get the same power right. which is me yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but in in that frame of reference what is capricorn are those two different shards presumably they're two different powers um i don't know that's a good question i mean <laughs> they, it, it might be this it might be just matter generation except with two different manifestations yeah. from the same shard yeah. so yeah, that's a good question though I, i'm i'm pretty curious to learn whether capricorn is actually you know one shard or two because that's a great it's a great point mm -hmm. so yeah so let's move on so uh finally victoria points at the smallest person present chastity uh, she wants to use chastity to wake up rain from his shard sleep yeah, and um, we finally get back to the part where we left Victoria's shard off in the last chapter, um, and we get we get told that instead of charging right in, powers blazing, Victoria wants to once again use the most subtle powers they have available, and because um, because that involves Rain waking up, we we now assume that his emotional power seems to be the one that she's primarily thinking of, which of course we learn uh, turns out to be true. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I like how the chapter actually kind of like slow plays what she's planning on doing. Um, that, that's fun. So Victoria heads back to where they have rain tucked away and she has to confront blue stocking and the rest of the contingent who scared off Cassie and the dog carrying rain. Um, as she leaves this confrontation, they inform her that Harbinger took contenders eyes with his marble. So there's the answer to last week's mystery. Uh, yep. It was contender, not Paris who was hit in the, eyes um and i think contender has like a like a, a gas mask over his face or something i'm not sure exactly but um they later described that there's like wiring and stuff mixed in there <laughs> yeah i wasn't sure if that was like a consequence of like was it some kind of tinker ball that the harbinger shot or was it just a marble yeah um wasn't entirely sure or not, not a marble but like a one of those heavy steel pellets that, that you buy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, it's wonderfully horrifying. Yeah. It's hor awesome. And <laughs> Victoria describes it as almost gentler than she expected and then wonders if this is this is the full the full uh, amount of what they meant by fate worse than death. Um, yeah. And then uh, Blue Stocking tells them um, if they don't get him medical attention to soon, he'll bleed out or the damage will get permanent. And since the portal is locked down, they're stuck. They can't get him medical attention. And Victoria basically shrugs this off, right? She yeah. says, if his injuries are permanent, if we take too long and his injuries become permanent, it's their fault, not ours. And um, while sure that kind of, <laughs> like, I mean, like, <laughs> like it, it, I know like, I don't think these are good people. They're not like, I, I don't like them very much at all, but this idea of this person needs medical attention and I'm going to say, no, 
um, not right yeah. now is just right. a little unsettling with me. Yeah. Honestly, Contender is one of the ones where I'm I'm least surprised because he was part of the group that machine gunned her friends. Um, so <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like that's I mean, it, it, I completely like I'm not trying to say that any of these people um, should not have been harmed in any way, but just the idea of uh, Victoria just being okay with saying, um, "Sorry, if you don't get me- medical attention, it's not my fault." And I don't know that just that just that just sat wrong with me a little bit. Right. I mean, basically, she's explicitly putting catching and stopping um, cradle and and saving the people who are, you know, in his in his egg over uh, this person's life. And I think the fact is that she's already made that choice. Right. So this is just her making that choice again, basically, because the one thing we don't see here is her kind of deal with that. In any way, yeah. she, she does. She seems fine with that decision. She's made it and she does it. Um, yeah. She doesn't like she says it sits odd with her. What happened to contender? Like she's not like jazzed about it, but um, she clearly like it, it's so funny that we saw from a person last week who was like. Almost stopped the number boy as he shot the ball bearing um, yeah. to now is just like. It's tough. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, and, and I think we'll see like a, a connection of this theory or not this theory uh, of this feeling when she fights Etna here in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. So, so yeah, she spots Etna who's apparently like bobbing around and launching glass balls at the dog carrying rain and Cassie. And so Victoria spends a couple of paragraphs thinking about tactics for dealing with the woman. Um, and like, she's like, Oh, let me consider this or option one, blah, blah, blah. And, and then I love how, I just love how this is executed. Option two, though, was to catch up to her when the constant turns had fucked with her most, tackle her, and use my flight and her disorientation to flip us both ten times in three seconds before arresting our movement and firmly depositing her in the nearest hillside. The crash landing on her part was more because of her disorientation than any exaggerated force on my end. (laughs) And so, like, it's fantastic because you're like... um. You don't realize that you're reading what she actually did until yeah. you're like three fourths of the way through the paragraph. And then you just like can't help but burst out laughing because like especially because option one is like something subtle and, and careful. And this is just like uh, what 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 actually just when you visualize it, it's just kind of hilarious that she just slams into her, uses her flight to spin them around and then just launches her at the hillside. Yeah. And she just splats it like it's just. It's so like Looney Tunes like level of of like painful um, and I love it. Yeah, but it, it's so good. I mean, it, it's a fun like just it's just fun writing. You're right, because it like it, it's a different way of describing the battle. Than it, yeah. it, it upends your expectations, but it also I think is reflective of where she is as a person right now, because like she's going through her strategies and she outlines option one. And then normally we, I think you would see Victoria outline option two and then make a decision and then go forward with her decision. But no, she's like option two is to do this right now. And she, instead of, instead of outlining it in her mind, what the plan is, she just does it. And yeah, yeah, it's a perfect encapsulation of what's going on in her head right now where, and, and we see that rather specifically later where she's just like, She's got no more fucks, Matt. She's she's all out of them. And she just wants to if anyone's standing in her way, she wants them gone. Right. Yeah. I mean, she's thought several times about um, how how basically frustrated she is with Edna specifically. Like 
Um, and, and here again, she thinks about how Etna is like reckless, um, willing to ally with the worst people, willing to just yeah. go along with things and, and never really take a stand. And here she is being a pain in her ass again. And it's like this is just the culmination of of all of the times that Etna has pissed her off in the past. Um, but I, I mean, it is funny because she's she she thinks I had no idea why I found it quite as irritating as I did. Chalk it up to diminished defenses. Yeah. Well, but but I think we I mean we kind of do because Edna's like the anti-Victoria in like sure. every way. That's I mean she even sort of has like like a flight power and, and and like she's kind of a mirror to her in that in that way. But she just just is is like the kind of person that you just know Victoria would hate. She goes along with things. She she uses her power in a lazy and 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 a thoughtless way. Um, it's like that's going to get under her skin. Definitely. Yeah. And well, what I love about it too, is that, that she's still like aware enough to question why she's as irritated as she is. Like she's not just going, um, it's, I had no idea why I found it quite as irritating as I did. Um, so she's still, she's still like, like aware enough of her stuff to question her behavior. Right. Like she's not just like she, she's done. She's in fuck it mode, but not like a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, because she's still, she's still questioning that she's still questioning her behavior. Like why she's, why she's getting to these places. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the thing I find most interesting about this is at the end of this whole thing, she, she slams her into the ground. She's done with her. She's pissed off at her. She, um, like you said, she is like a, a anti Victoria kind of. And then, um, she says, maybe I'd be more forgiving if I find out later that like, blue stocking ordered her to do that <laughs> like she's like like she's acknowledging that that etna might have just been following orders <laughs> and yeah. it's like i don't i don't i can't deal with this right now but maybe if i learn about that later i'll feel a little bit more bad about being so annoyed with her but it's just like right now nah, don't have time for that right I, personally it's impossible for me to feel bad at all about her throwing this person into a hillside <laughs> well i'm not like I, i'm not saying she should but i just think it's funny that like that 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 thought goes through her mind, and that she she almost comes up with an argument for why um, she would be behaving in this way uh, uh-huh. after throwing her into the ground. Yeah, yeah, true. So finally, Victoria explains her plan fully, which is, uh, as Byron says, to turn Rain off and turn him back on again. Um, Chastity agrees to do it despite the risk of being eaten by a shard monster, <laughs> um, because love is the most important thing. Uh, and because she said she would help Rain before. Yeah, but just with love. And then she just says, no, I said I would help him, which is yeah. wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I love this part because it's like they're like he said he wanted a way out of the dream. He said he wanted to find a way out of the dream. That's what he wanted anyway. And and so that is what kind of encourages her to take the risk because she knew this was something that he wanted. And man, Matt, all of Victoria's plans recently have involved like being heavily abusive to Rain in some shape or fashion. I'm just yeah. starting to feel bad for him. Yeah, it's true. There's a lot of hitting rain. There's a lot of <laughs> invading rain's personal bubble. Yeah, that that hap- that's happened in this arc in general, and it's going to happen in the next chapter too. We'll talk yeah. about it then too. Um, yeah. So after Chastity is knocked out, Cassie starts to explain a bit to, uh, that her and Chastity are very close, and we're going to revisit it in a minute. Actually, when uh, I guess we'll just talk about it. Now, yeah, though. we'll just talk when, about it now. Yeah, when, when Cassie elaborates that Chastity feels like. She has an expiration date because Heartbreaker would dispose of women in their mid-20s 
And Victoria promises that she'll keep an eye out for somebody who would be a good match for chastity. And then she says, my friend, my best friend needs help too. She needs a body. I'll keep an eye out for your friend if you keep an eye out for mine. Yeah. So we joke around about chastity and interactions with men a lot because they're really funny. Yeah. <laughs> and we've joked around about Cassie and chastity's friendship a lot, too. We've, we've done a lot of winky faces and innuendo about what's going on here. But look, like this is friendship in its purest, wonderful form. Um, this is a person who genuinely looking out for the well-being of a friend who thanks to her terrible terrible father has such a damaged terrible view of relationships and love um the whole setup of this the scene that we're talking about right now is because um victoria called chastity incorrigible and that was enough for cassie to be like not like come she she doesn't walk up to her to yell at her about it to fight her about it she just kind of walks up to her and says look you're kind of right but here, understand why like you're you're you are you might have you might be right about her behavior, but try to understand why she is this way. Here's what happened to her. Here's what she's been through. And it's it's this beautifully kind, compassionate moment where Cassie is showing how much she cares about this person. And then we kind of link it back to Victoria and Sveta here where Victoria is asked for help. And then asks for help back. And by linking these two friendships, we understand like the level they're both on. Right. We, we've we've now said Cassie is to chastity as Victoria is to Sveta. And I think that is the most clear way to make everyone understand um, the importance of each of these characters for each of the other characters on both sides of this thing. And I, I love it. I love it so much. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I have much to add there. I love how how that bit bit is handled. Um, and it's an interesting little interlude, you know, that's kind of woven into this chapter. Cause again, it, it occurs, it basically takes place in two different places in the chapter. Like it's, it's sort of, we're sort of primed on it. And then Cassie later like takes her aside and, and is like, look, let me, let me kind of clarify what's going on here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's heartwarming. And I feel like something's going to come of it. Cause I feel like we're getting this whole like, chastity plot line for lack of a better word sure yeah um where things are going to come due i mean like because you know you could have i mean i think we kind of knew ever since she said like long you know several many chapters ago like okay rain i'll i'll help you because it's important to to protect love and and that's finally coming due here um so i kind of expect to see other things to come do in the future. Yeah. But, but again, I have to like in the middle of this part of the story where the bad guys are literally tearing our characters apart. We have once again, a focus on community, a focus on a network of people. We have people caring and looking out for people they care about and people willing to reach out to people outside of their immediate group for help, for support, for network, for caring. Like, over and over and over again, we're, we're, we're establishing and pointing towards this, this theme and this idea of community and the power of people being together. And in the midst of trying to defeat enemies that are literally ripping them apart, I think that is so, so important. And I just love seeing it in all the different facets of it, all the different ways we're seeing this, like family, um, family you choose, uh, friendship, like this is a pure plutonic friendship between these two characters, but it is one of the most powerful relationships we've seen in the story. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that connection there. That's great. So Rain wakes up feeling like shit. All of his powers are almost non-existent except his emotion power, which is cranked up to the max, which makes us realize that Rain did not take Cradle's offer and Love Lost gave him the tokens and we're so happy. Yeah, <laughs> we knew our boy wouldn't take those coins, Matt. In retrospect, we should have known. He he's, didn't trust that stupid Cradle man. Yeah. 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 I mean, I like that that was I like that it was a little ambiguous the way that last the way that interlude ended because you could have actually interpreted it to mean that Love Loss was going to give her tokens to someone as a um, penalty, like to give them an uncontrollable rage yeah. that would that would make them falter. Um, but that's that that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, um, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the the, rain, the 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 rage is not helping him, but uh, no. the, the emotion power certainly is. Sure. Yeah. And especially since you're right, he has no other powers. He has no mover power um his his blades are just normal looking blades that disappear instantly his tinker power is like i love i love the the abstractness of kind of tinker powers when you're just like hmm think of some abstract device yeah nope nothing's coming i guess my tinker power isn't working i kind of love that um but yeah just that emotion power and it's pumped up and uh yeah and then we get we get this fun throughout the rest of these two chapters we have these fun bits of dramatic irony that we're going to talk about a lot especially next chapter of we know that rain has been dosed with some rage victoria doesn't and the chapter is playing with this this lack of knowledge on our point of view protagonists uh throughout all of this yeah right yeah so the plan is for rain to use his power on the interior of the egg soaking cradle in self-loathing and regret Rain chats with Moose when they're back with the others, and uh, Moose gives him the rundown on, I think, uh, the potential regrets of the people in the building so that he can use them as a weapon. Yeah, it's it's kind of this mo- weird moment where you're like, okay, which of these are murderers? Which of these have maybe done something they regret, which are fine? Like, who can I target? Who is more susceptible to this thing? Who should I leave alone? All those kind of things. I, I, I like it a lot. Right. And I like the distinction of like, well, some of them are murderers, but some of them are murderers who don't feel anything about it. So yeah. That's yeah, right. uh, definitely something to, to pay attention to. Yeah. So the team breaks up into a complicated plan, some members sneaking around the building and avoiding the patrols, the bulk of the capes hanging back, uh, ready to knock down the building if everything goes wrong. And now I know I just said that the, the Cassie and Chastity part was my favorite part of the chapter, but no, actually, uh, Victoria wrapping her mom in a dog blanket <laughs> and carrying her under her arm as she flies through the air is is my favorite part of the chapter yeah yeah i don't know why matt but I, I like the book specifically tells me the opposite but i always imagined carol's ball as much bigger like human sized for some reason not like basketball sized or beach ball sized or whatever it is um so like even though the book literally said the opposite in my head, it was always much bigger. So I actually think it's way more hilarious now that I can see it as like just a ball size that you could just carry around like this and be like, ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I guess I don't know exactly how big it is. I see it as like, as like basketball sized. Yeah. I mean, if it fits under, like if you can hold it under your arm, right? Like if yeah. you're holding it like this kind of, um, yeah. Oh, people can't see me. Never mind. <laughs> like this yeah. guys, like this. Well, well, I also didn't visualize it as glowing. Um, I, I visualized it as metallic, so it's another one of those things where oh, really? your brain I, no. just does whatever it's going to do. I always visualize it as glowing. <laughs> it's, I, it almost certainly is because that's why she puts the dog blanket on it. But right, right, yeah. right. Who it's knows wonderful. why I thought that? Um, yep, so she, uh, as she uh, carries her mom and Rain up to a window, she notices Rain's heart is hammering as she lifts off with him, which I suppose uh, we ought to 
uh, interpret as the rage manifesting. Yeah, and I like I like the structure of this because we set this up. We're going to be talking about this dramatic irony a lot next chapter, as we said, but we're, we're setting it up at the conclusion of this chapter. We're rounding about to the end of this chapter and we're kind of laying the groundwork for you to understand. Um, yes, he's he's going to be agitated. Now you get to see how that plays out and how that increases the tension of the events that are going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So rain and Victoria sit at the window and rain begins to cook the egg. And she makes a second chapter ending egg pun, Matt. <laughs> So happy. Yeah. A second. <laughs> if you do one more, I, I heard that uh, Eggle juice comes. There's a Beetlejuice reference, guys. Uh, you guys know Beetlejuice? No? I hope, I hope so. I'm down for more egg references. That's why I'm here. Oh, that, that's why you're here, man? That's why, that's why I'm here. Okay. Uh, so chapter 12.6, and we pick right back up with Rain cooking that egg. And it's very quickly apparent that Rain is uh, losing it a little bit. Uh, in a way that I find delightful, frankly. He can't keep his voice down. He keeps making these violent movements with his arms. And, and his words are just like kind of like betraying this deep anger that's growing in him. Yeah, this is a this is a really tense chapter overall. The chapter is dealing with tension in a lot of fun ways. And the dramatic irony really helps wonderfully enforce everything the chapter is trying to do tension-wise. Um, we see Victoria... <laughs> struggling with this like she's like why is he acting this way why is he doing this he's being ridiculous like and she doesn't understand and that like it makes it kind of funny you're right it makes it entertaining and, and silly a little bit but at the same time it's like um is he gonna go too far like there's a bit we'll get to in a bit where he's like pressing his hand against the glass so hard that for a second there she's like oh he might just shatter that like it's it's, it's wonderful it's like this you're seeing like completely irrational like and it, and the important part is that it's so different from how rain normally acts yeah 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 right um i mean that's what that's what makes it kind of funny because like rain is kind of a lovable not not doofus that's not right but he's kind of a lovable guy Do, who, doofus you take Do, doofus but well doofus. it's not because he's dumb it's just because no. he's he always takes the brunt of every unfortunate thing that happens and now he's like, this is kind of yet another unfortunate thing that's happening, but it's like making him act crazy in a, in a way that's not hurting anyone. And so it's okay to laugh about. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So uh, the first part of the chapter is constructed, I think, for maximum tension. Basically, we're painting a detailed picture of the guard patrols that the team is trying to evade. Uh, Victoria gives nicknames to the various guards, uh, which are actually just like uh, numbers in different languages. Um, yeah. and, and she kind of characterizes them and like in the process of trying to anticipate them, she's thinking about their habits and it's all really, really great writing, I think. Yeah. And, and I, I love it. I love it for so many different reasons, but there's no real reason to, um, to name the guards, right? Like, like just from a, a structural perspective, like they're anonymous guards we don't we're not going to really probably ever see them again. Giving them names personifying this way has no long term story purpose. But in doing so, 
we do so much at the start of this chapter to establish the tension. We, by, by naming the guards, we have a better grip of, of the geography of the roof. We kind of know, okay, one and two are over there and, and then four and five are the ones doing this. And they each have a different personality. They each do a different thing. They each have a different way that they patrol up here. And, and this little bit of characterization goes such a long way in making you feel the tension of this opening, feel the moments of, actual fear when you think oh shit they're going to be discovered this could blow up at any moment and on top of it could blow up at any moment we have rain who's acting like a nut job um and and not being strategic at all and and compound that with being discovered could be just disastrous and and i think i I don't think we can undersell the importance that actually comes with just just spending two lines characterizing these people um it, it it's wonderful yeah, I mean, one thing Wild Bill always does, I think, is he tries to put you in, in the same position as the protagonist to the point where you feel like you're problem solving along with them, which means that you need to know all of the same information and constraints that they know. Yeah, because otherwise you you have like the Sherlock Holmes syndrome where they solve problems and you're like, oh, yeah, well, I didn't know about that. So that's not fun for me. Yeah, well, um, I mean, but that has its own kind of implicit enjoyment to it. it um, that's fun, I think, under different, like, if you're trying to make me impressed with the protagonist, for one thing. Um, but this is a situation where the fun is like you're with the protagonist. You're like, you're looking over her shoulder through that window and you're solving the problem along with her. It, it, like, that's the experience of reading anyway. Yeah. When, when I, I agree with that. Like this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Rain mentions that Tattletale and three other people are, quote, in the bubble. Um, and I'm, so I'm not sure what that means. I kind of had to like think about it for a second. So I think, I think that there's Colt, Love Lost and Cradle are like inside the bubble and then the bubble comprises Tattletale and then three other people, which may be, um, um, Capricorn, Moonsong and maybe Kenzie. Like, I guess we kind of have to just guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that was my yeah i think the imagery of the bubble the egg is something i struggled with a little bit um because like it's described as this 15 feet across thing um that's sitting inside of a mech that's like it's being supported by a mech that's a bunch of hands that all come together to support this thing and it is com- compromise it is comprised of pieces of people right yeah. um and there are three people inside it, we can assume, um, because right after this moment, there's this Victoria says she was hoping that Cradle was actually in the mech um, so she could just take him away. Right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the bubble. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But but the bubble is in the mech. So that's yeah, that's what kind of threw me off. Well, I, is, I th- the bubble's not in the mech, though. What's well, on, on the mech, right? It's, yeah. The mech. The, the point of the mech is it's holding the bubble. OK, so it's OK. Yeah. Yeah. But if I it, guess the, the interesting that, thing is if it is the other way around, right, is if it is saying there are tattletale and three people inside the egg, then the question becomes, what's she what's tattletale doing in there? Why did she pull? Why did why did he pull tattletale in there, too? Right. I mean, that yeah. that that becomes an interesting question that I don't know the answer to. If that is if that is what we're supposed to take from this. Yeah, I think we'll figure out what's going on here. I was just a little bit thrown off. Yeah. So Rain is also sniping at the various soldiers in capes with his power, surgically hitting them with bursts of regret, watching their reactions, and then playing a game of pushing uh, just when it seems like a push would uh, throw them off balance. 
Yeah. And again, our, our dramatic irony reveals its head here. Um, we know Victoria has asked him to go easy on these people. Um, and normally rain probably would have been really good at like going very easy on them and not pushing too hard. But we know that this rain is not quite himself today and, and that his power is much more powerful than it normally is. The fact that he's more powerful with less ability to hold himself back um, is if we're seeing this pushing and prodding and, and we're now worried. Is he going too far with this? What's going to happen? Like, is this is this really going to work out in a way we want it to? And that's all part of leading to the, the, the overall tension of the chapter. Yeah, right. Um, so speaking of violating Rain's personal space, I think it's funny how victoria keeps forcefully shoving her hand under his mask to block his mouth <laughs> yeah instead of just being like Shh. like it's I, I mean there's been so many instances over these last several chapters of like her grabbing him shoving him grabbing his mask uh just uh, ordering someone else to slap him i, I don't know it's <laughs> I, I mean i mean part of me thinks it's just funny but part of me is like it is like is he gonna be like stop touching me (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah yeah i mean it like i think it is it's great because like functionally um putting your hand over someone's mask doesn't stop their mouth from moving in a way that she shoved her she shoved her hand under the mask onto his actual mouth which to me would just just drive me crazy i'd be like get your fucking hand out of my mask what are you doing but but covering a mask that's my point is covering a mask like i can still I can still move my mouth just fine unless you're like, yeah. like it, it, she, it's, it's, it's out of necessity, but you're right. It is yeah. like, it is poor rain getting abused again. And I think in the back of our mind, we're like, well, he's in already an agitated state. Like the stuff that, he, that rain without love lost teeth, um, would put up with is not going to be the same stuff that this rain would put up with. Yeah. And I think that's, that's kind of in the back of your mind is, yeah, you see her grab, grab his face and then like, like fly down with him right because someone was walking by um yeah. and and she's just like like throwing him around kind of like a rag doll yeah yeah yep so well uh, we learned a little bit about chugalug the trash changer um who flies over and the description's super fucking gross scott yeah i was eating when i read this so awesome yeah, the the description of the smell was just I was just like mm. very vivid, mm, very yeah. very very yeah. yeah. It was very important that we focus on how bad the smell is. Yeah, I can taste that in my throat. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah, so I think we've talked about this before. Wildbo has this deft way of doing the writing thing that I personally struggle with. Kind of harkens back to what we were just saying about about describing the um you know the traits of the of, of the guards, but I'm gonna go into it more here just because I. I think that it's just really well done overall in this chapter. Mm-hmm. So it's an opportunity to talk about it. So like you've got this scene with like 50 bad guys and it's seductive to just write the bad guys as like a mass, just like oh, the mercenaries, the enemy, the black clad assailants. And and then when one of them does something, it's just like one of the mercenaries did the thing. But Wildo has spent much of this chapter carefully lodging specific enemies in our minds. Like we know Chuggalug now. We know the Lumberjack. We know Sybin. We know red. Um, we know we know probably twice that many actually. Um, so it could have been just like a flat kind of same same mass of baddies is made colorful, complex, dynamic, and tense on top of all that because you're following what is now in your head a very complex scene. 
Yeah. And I actually, um, I think this is something that I think in going back to our early experience with worm, um, this is something that I think he's just tangibly better at than he was, uh, back at the very beginning of that book. I think we talked like one of the first big multi cape fights in that battle or that book, how kind of things kind of got lost in the geography and like you kind of lost your way a little bit, what was going on. And we compare it to this, which has so many different moving parts. We have so many different characters, like we have all of our heroes and, and like foils off doing something. And Sveta's over here with Carol doing something else. And then we have all of our villains. We've got at the same time as our, um, as our patrol is rotating on the roof and there are two capes up there, we've got all these other capes at the bottom. You're absolutely right. Like this is so much stuff going on at the same time. And yet I was able to keep track of it. I never lost who was what I never lost what was going on. I never lost what the stakes and the tensions and the conflicts of each little bit of the scene were. Um, that's all clear. And it all runs through in a very clean, organized, easy to understand way. Um, and that's what makes the emotions of this chapter work. Because if you, if you get confused, if you lose your way in it, um, you just lose all, all grasp of the tension. Yeah, exactly. So Victoria goes to check on Sveta and Sveta actually seems to be like psyching herself up for having to kill somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the really important part that we need to point out here though. Um, and I think this is going to matter a bit in, in, in a couple minutes is Sveta is just like chilling with Carol in ball form. Like she's just like holding her. She's the dog wrapped in the blanket and she's got tendrils around her. Um, and she's whispering to her when Victoria approaches Sveta is whispering something to Carol and she stops as soon as Victoria shows up. Um, and that might matter in a bit for some reason. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, so when she gets back to Rain, he's like climbing around dangerous, dangerously on the side of the building, <laughs> just like pumping power into the crowd. And he's just like overwhelmed with rage as he uses the power. I mean, we, we, we realize like the fact that he's using the power is probably what's making him lose it quite to the degree that he is now. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And and I love I love the detail of this because he's climbing around on um, the little stepping stones that Foyle left for herself. Yeah. And we know like Foyle has like enhanced powers to make the, like traversing these things possible and rain doesn't. And you're just like, oh, dude, it's like I mean, it's literally like she's babysitting. Right. Because yeah. like he, she comes back and he's gone and it's just like, oh, God, it's like baby's day out. But yeah. with rain. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like this bit, like he, he's, he, he's using it on the crowd and he's making them do increasingly dumb things and take risks. And, and, and she says, remember your power educates them. I remember rain said I disabled it just as he did the stupid thing. <laughs> um, I laughed. Yeah. But I mean, look at like, look at how he's talking though. Like, I, I love this. Like the text emphasizes, remember they put it in italic. So like, I remember as if like Victoria is annoying the fuck out of him at this point. And yeah. we have him, he, he, when he talks to her, he hisses at her um, and he's, he's losing it. And it's just so, it's so wonderfully conveyed. Like it is, it is both rain and, and different rain at the same time. Like you can still recognize the, the fundamental core of who he is because like the things that he's getting really mad about is like, he's thinking about Tristan and how Tristan was one of the only ones that has back. And he's thinking about Kenzie and the things Cradle had done to, to her and and it's just so it's so good i like it so much yeah me too um so i i love that uh S- Sibin, i know i'm not pronouncing these words right i'm sorry Sibin, 
It's probably Sieben. It's, it's German. I don't know. Yeah. Sieben, one of the patrolling mercenaries, found Sveta. Um, so that's what happens next. They find Sveta because when there was a noise, Sieben intentionally looked away from the noise because that's a pretty good habit to have unless you want to end up like an NPC in a Metal Gear Solid or <laughs> Hitman game or whatever. Um, so, like, yeah, I just low-key love the competence and individuality of these mooks. Yeah, and it's it's great because Victoria immediately assumes that it has to have been because of a power. Like her immediate assumption is, oh, that was really clever and smart of you. Is it a power? And her response is, no, good habits. And I like that, like, it, it does a little characterization of this nameless, this nameless mook, as you said. But it's also Victoria characterization where, like, whenever she's slightly impressed by someone, her immediate thought is, it must be powers related. And I think that's very Victoria in her. She's, she has such a cape centric view of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about this interaction that you mentioned a second ago. I'll watch them. Sveta said, kill them if I have to. You, my mom said, she pointed at Sveta. I'm not impressed. What the hell? It's fine. Sveta said, what the hell? I whispered. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I love this because, is Victoria just repeatedly saying what the hell as she's just yeah. like, oh my God, what did I miss? What's what's going on between you two? And just like you can sense this just like simmering tension between Sveta and Carol, which I suppose has been there forever, but now it's just on the point of um, it's such a wonderful, such a wonderful Carol thing to say. I'm yeah. not impressed. <laughs> well, and it, it especially combined with the fact that we know like Victoria has been going like above and beyond for the last few chapters to like, help Sveta as much as possible, like to make her feel like she's helping and included. Like she knows Sveta's in a rough place and she's trying as hard as she can to like, like lift her up a bit. And then, and then her mom comes in with this, I am not impressed. And yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of interesting thing to, things to be said about this because like on the, the surface level, Sveta says, I'm willing to kill these people if I have to. And then Carol's reaction to that is like immediately like super negative. And, like, while I'm not, like, a huge fan of this idea of, like, killing, like, captured prisoners, um, I I don't, I think it would be a rather understandable thing in this situation where if someone, like, suddenly tries to escape or fights back or attacks you, like, to, to try to take them out. And also just to use as a threat to these people because right. they can hear what you're saying. Right. And I don't, I don't see Carol as the type of person that would, like, that that is the reason, right? That, like, like threatening someone with no. death is going to be the reason why she gets mad because like when, when we go, when, when Victoria flies back to the situation, Carol is standing there with two light blades against their neck. Like she's already threatening them with death. That's what she's yeah. doing just in actions instead of words. So that's why I want to go back to this idea that Sveta is whispering to her for who, who knows how long, <laughs> like probably maybe a while, maybe she's like airing stuff out or like, like the last time we saw those two people talk, um, Sveta told Carol to mom the fuck up, right? right? So like that's when we last left their conversation, and now we're here with she gets an uninterrupted like Carol is in ball form. She can't talk back. She's a ball, um, and and Sveta is just allowed to talk to. She has a captive audience, and she's allowed to talk. So I mean, I think that's more what what Carol's I'm not impressed is coming from. Yeah, I agree. I, I felt like. Um that she was reacting to something that had happened before Victoria got there, which, yeah. which is why Victoria is like, what the hell? And it's like, that's, that's not a, what's happening right here. doesn't make sense. 
and then Sveta just being like, it's fine. It is, right, is, like, is indicating like, we're not going to talk about it right now. Yeah. And, and Sveta knows exactly why she's saying this to her. Right, right? exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Yeah, I, I love that bit because now now the implication is you're you're right in Victoria's point of view where you're like, what's going on here? Why? 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 <laughs> what did she say to her? What did Sveta say to Carol? What's going on with Carol right now? Yeah. Can't wait to is find it, out. I mean, is it probably Victoria related, but maybe maybe it's a lot of the swan song stuff we've been talking about. That's kind of been in the background of all these interactions for the last few chapters. I don't know. I can't wait to see more. Yeah, me too. So Victoria gets back to rain just in time to watch Red obliterate a couple of guys with her masses of splashes of heavy metal pieces. Um, <laughs> and Rain's like, oh, no. Oh, no. I, I drove him <laughs> to do that. Yeah. And Victoria sa- thinks or she says, yeah, and then thinks. I was caught between saying that's not on you and I did fucking tell you to go easy. Yeah, I, uh, it's such a loaded statement, right? Like yeah. it's just like I was caught between saying that's not I was caught between saying that's not your fault and that was definitely your fault. Yeah. Like she's she's somewhere in between the two and she doesn't know which way to go, so she just leaves it at yeah. Um she's and again, we know like she is confused. Like she is confused. Like I I told you to do this. Why are you not? Why are you acting like this? And she doesn't know. And it's just, it's just a wonderful way to hold that tension and keep that tension going. Yeah. yeah. And then I love this whole subsequent conversation between them. Cause I think it's very important for both characters. It's this great moment for, for them individually. And, and then kind of for their, I guess, relationship, right? Cause they, they have been yeah. spending a lot of time together recently. And, Cause rain compares what he's doing right now to what cult leaders do, pushing buttons, manipulating, and Rain says it makes him feel big, powerful, better, and and that makes him feel sick. Like the fact that he feels good doing this stuff makes him feel right. sick. And Victoria, formerly G- Glory Girl, says, yeah, sometimes you do feel satisfaction when you fuck up people who deserve it. Uh, the danger, she says, is when you stop feeling shitty about feeling satisfaction about it. Uh, and then he goes on and he says, but I'd feel worse if I didn't do anything. That's the way it goes, I whispered. Yeah. Um, oh God, let's talk about this forever. Okay. We could probably spend an hour on this. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things we've talked about and one of the things the book has kind of drawn for us is this, this relationship between rain and Victoria, this, this, um, and, and at the very start of the relationship, she compared it to, she compared rain to Amy, right? She said like, it was this moment where rain was about to tell them what was going on and tell them the truth about himself. And she immediately went, um, that's Amy like, like that, this is like when Amy like told us about her father, um, wh- where she really came from and connected that. And then later she connected cradle to herself in, in what he was saying about, uh, what rain did to him supposedly. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's always been like this very important connection between these two characters on, on a level where I think we've seen, we've understood why Victoria is is agitated with him and it tends to get more annoyed and uh, and upset with him than maybe some of the other members of of the group why she's she's kind of quick to be upset at rain uh-huh. um and, and then we take that we take that central idea and then we kind of have both characters come together in a moment of where she fundamentally understands exactly what he's going through so we've kind of moved from her seeing him as this victoria as this amy substitute in her life to maybe understanding him on a different level to maybe and maybe that's that's a hint towards her 
ability to um, understand Amy, or maybe that's just her um, growing to understand that maybe what she didn't like about this guy was how much it reminded her of herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I love, I love that. I love that you're absolutely right that this is just as important for her as it is for him. Yeah. Right. There's, there's, there's always been this fascinating sense in which rain is kind of like the way Amy is, but he's also a lot like the way Victoria is. Right. And she, she very rarely makes these comparisons explicitly, but clearly a lot of the way she behaves toward him is reflected in the fact that she's kind of making these comparisons and contrasts subconsciously. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's why I love this conversation is it feels like a lot of the things that are kind of going on between them under the surface get aired out and made explicit between them. And yeah, like, it's not like they hug and agree to be friends after this, but, (laughs) um, but it feels like, it feels like something was accomplished by them having this conversation. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think there's, there's, there's something so important to this, this idea that sometimes it's okay to feel satisfied when you're hurting the bad people, right? Like sometimes like that is a natural, okay reaction to getting one over on people as bad as cradle. Mm -hmm. Um, but as long as you keep that in context, as long as you don't lose this, 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 perspective on it where you where where you keep the fact that yes sometimes that feels good but it should feel a little bit bad too like it should there should be part of it that makes you feel like oh i'm i am like i'm getting the bad people but i'm having to do kind of shitty things to do it and i should feel a little bit of guilt on that not enough to stop you because like as she says um that's the way it goes. Like sometimes it's worse to do nothing in those situations. Yes, you should do it. It is the right thing to do, but you're going to feel a little bit bad about it. And as long as you keep hold of feeling a little bit bad about it, um, it's a sign that you're not like, you're not like going down that path yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You're not losing the part of you that makes you not like them basically. Right. Right. And I think that it's a wonderful setup for, for the last line of this chapter that we're going to get to in a minute. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So the level of commotion inside the building escalates and the heroes are forced to act outside, executing the pineapple 710 whatever maneuver, um, (laughs) overwhelming the mercs quickly. But then the egg opens and Cradle is awake early, covered in blood. He's struggling. There are wet tracks down his cheeks through the blood and he screams and it feels good. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, there is something here that I wanted that jumped out at me immediately. Um, that feels like we're setting up to something else. Like in this moment, his hands clutched at his chest, then reached for a pocket eyeglass case. He stopped not putting them on. And this feels to me like we're setting something up. Um, this feels like, and I know you've read the chapter, so shut up. Um, (laughs) but this feels to me like this is like, this is like a cradle tick, or maybe this is a tick of, former cradle before he became cradle and um that that this is i i feel like this is going to pay off in some way in the next chapter in a cool way and it's just like because it's so specific right it's so like he reached the first thing he does is reach out for his eyeglass case then he he stops he doesn't put it on then he reaches for his mask and then he stops and doesn't put that on either and then he just screams like that is that is a very significant series of moves and i feel like that's going to pay off some way yeah yeah in the next chapter that i know is a cradle chapter so Yes, I love your thoughts here. <laughs> okay, thank you. 
I mean, yeah, no, it's it's just the whole ending of the chapter is, is fantastic. Just this idea of him roaring. And, and like, so I interpreted the, the the scream as being like, um, um, just like devastation on some level. Like, like I yeah. guess frustration too, though. But yeah, I, I, I love it. Well, I mean, a, a lot of what we've talked about around Cradle is like his emotion power, um, or at least the part of it that he gave to Love Lost seems to be uh, the ability to feel nothing, right? Like so, so to to make the general assumption that that is that is who Cradle is, that he doesn't feel a yeah. lot. So we see him in this moment crying. Um, he he comes and he's early. Uh, we don't really understand why he woke up early. Uh, maybe something to do with what Rain was doing. Maybe something else entirely. Um, but seeing him cry means he's feeling this. Means that this thing worked. That that whatever whatever rain was doing to him got to him in in a, in a way that made him feel something. And yeah, if you're a person who doesn't feel and suddenly someone makes you feel feelings, especially feelings like guilt and regret about all the terrible, terrible, terrible things you've been doing. Yeah. You're probably not going to, probably not going to react very, very great to that. Yeah. And I love that they kind of set this up throughout the chapter because one of the things that, that uh, Victoria and, and rain were talking about as he's kind of bugging these people is the idea that everyone reacts to guilt and regret in different ways. Um, everyone has different reactions to it. Every, like some people get violent, some people uh, close up, they they leave, they run away. Uh, everyone deals with it differently. Yeah, yeah. And so this chapter ends with the line: "There it was, that satisfaction that didn't feel as awful as it needed to." And that's just a wonderful payoff. We had this whole moment where Victoria is coaching Rain, as long as it doesn't stop feeling bad, you're good. And then she admits here in this moment that him screaming, the fact that this worked, that they boiled him, um, didn't feel as awful as it needed to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I love that because that's how you feel, right? In the moment, you're like, yeah, yeah fuck you, Cradle. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is, you know, it, it's hard to hold that against Victoria that that she's feeling satisfaction about this. Yeah, um, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and be like, like you should or should not feel right. this. The thing that I find fascinating is her awareness of it, right. right? Like she, she is the one saying this. She is both feeling really good about this while simultaneously being aware that she doesn't feel as bad about it as she feels that she should or that she needs to feel like that's, I, it, it's, it's not that it didn't feel as awful as I wanted it to. It didn't feel as awful as it needed to. Yeah, and we've like, we've, we've talked about how, you know, the shard said Victoria was on this ledge and she, she could go this path. And then we have this moment where we're like, we seem to be moving towards this, this real, uh, moment of choice for Victoria where, um, she's going to decide which one of these paths she's going to go down. And, and this is a, a, a beat along that, that, that path towards that eventual choice. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's an interesting point to close the discussion on because, I, I have a hard time seeing a path where Victoria is, is anything that I would consider to be a tyrant. Um, yeah, I agree. But but that doesn't mean that the path isn't something a little bit more nuanced that than I'm maybe considering, you know? Um, because, like, stuff like this, like, you give her the power to um, stop the monsters. Yeah. And suddenly, suddenly things look different, right? Like she, she's, she's got the waste shard, right? She's got garbage powers. She only gets good use out of them because she's clever. What if she suddenly had really great powers and she could stop the monsters? But in order to do that, 
you have to impose your will on a lot of people who don't want you to do that. Now you start to risk becoming a tyrant, right? Now that's actually plausible. Yeah. So that's, I guess that's kind of where I'm, where my head is at right now is like, uh, maybe at the start of these two chapters, I was like, no way does Victoria become a tyrant. That's so antithetical to who she is. And it's like, yeah, well, you hand her the button and you say you push this button and you can stop the monsters. But a lot of other stuff is going to happen. People aren't going to like it. <laughs> Are you going to push the yeah. button? Maybe. Maybe she does. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I, I don't think I don't think any kind of tyranny from Victoria would look as as cut and dry as as what we think of when we think of a tyrannical person, right? I right. think it would it would come in a kind of insidious way where it seems like the right thing to do. Um and it it probably would even be to a certain extent. Like like once again, I think we we have to say that her killing Cradle here, if she is the one that ends up to have to if she's the one that pulls the proverbial trigger on this, um it's it's the right thing to do. He's like clearly a terrible he's clearly a bad person that needs to be stopped. He needs to be stopped. Right. Um but yeah, like like that is a perfect way to to demonstrate going down a path is that it, you do it in a situation where it is unquestionably the right call. Um, what about the next one? What about the next one? What about the next one? And I don't know if that's where we're going with her. I hope that's not where we're going with her. I hope she's she's better than that. But that doesn't mean that it's not a possibility. I mean, I, I do feel like the story is going to be facing her with these question, questions and, and right. then what what path she chooses will be, you know, the drama, actually. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, well, yeah, that's and and yeah. and it's not like life isn't life and these stories is not about just that choice, right? It's a, like you, it's it's a thousand micro choices. Yeah. Like you, you might even make the decision to turn away from this this path of tyranny that her shard was talking about. Um, that doesn't mean that okay, you're done, you've did it, you've you've done it, you've walked away from that path, and you'll never be challenged to make these kind of decisions again. That's just not the way things work. And um, yeah, so yeah, it's going to be interesting going forward to see how that goes. And and I think. My thing is, I think as as long as Victoria stays with her group, values her community, values the network that she's created and and her natural inclination to reach out to other people for help and support, um, she can stay away from that path. Yeah, I hope so. So that wraps up the chapter discussion. Um, Now let's talk about last week's discussion question and the wonderful answers you all gave. So the question was, consider what these shard POVs are saying about different ways trauma can manifest and different ways people can respond to their trauma. All right. And first up, we have EXE, JPEG, Windows Media Viewer? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) And they they focus on specifically on Victoria and March um, for uh, obvious reasons, because those are the shard point of views we've seen. First, they say Vicky's shard point of view represents someone struggling to maintain a delicate, healthy equilibrium in the face of past traumas rearing up and a currently stressful situation. Situation. While difficult, this has led to Victoria having more stable relationships and made her more understanding of others. While March's shard's point of view mostly shows someone having fully given in to the comfortable delusion, not really managing or even fully acknowledging their trauma, and acting on these delusions has gotten numerous innocent people and even one of her friends killed. That's a really great comparison. I like that's a it's a good summary of the differences between the two of these characters and how those shards represent those differences. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. Cal Subalu says, I think that with the loss of the warrior hub, the shards have experienced trauma, which in some cases directly parallels their capes and therefore one of the core themes of the story, recovery. We know the shards have been hurt because that's sort of what caused all this trouble. 
We've seen what happens when the shards fail to cope with their losses. Broken triggers. Sl um, slow bleed out of power. Change paralysis. We've also seen some of, the, some of the things that happen when a shard latches onto unhealthy behavior in an effort to be not broken. In 12.all, shards shut off their cape's powers to experience a moment of communication, potentially putting at risk what's left of their ability to change. What we haven't seen much of is shards actually learning coping mechanisms or finding ways to recover through using them. It seems plausible that a shard, cough the waste, cough, uh, or a group of shards, cough breakthrough, hack, might learn some coping strategies from their hosts that can be applied to themselves, that they might be able to recover and even self-improve in a manner that doesn't involve centuries of combat games. Yeah, so I like this a lot. Um, I like specifically this idea that, well, I guess it borders on being a theory, that uh, either waste or breakthrough or like the, the collective of breakthrough or some combination of the two, sort of when you think about it for a minute, have a lot of unusual, uh, unusual shard shenanigans going on with them, uh, which could be like the the secret code, you know, the, the, to cracking the, the the solution to to creating a new hub or, or something like that. So. Um, and that, that would be kind of satisfying in a number of ways because they're also the group, they're also the therapy group who is trying to recover. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, it's the power of group therapy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I continue to be worried about this idea that like reestablishing the shard hub is the way to go. <laughs> like like that that's going to be a good thing. The shards connect to each other now. Um, great. Problem solved. No. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think maybe that's just kind of conceptual shorthand for something, something shards, something recovery, <laughs> change and potential for growth that rather breaking the status quo, which is basically sure. like the shards are all going to die and everybody's going to die and everything's bad. Yeah, I mean, I certainly like this idea of of extending this like if because one of the things that worm did so well was extend this, this metaphor of trauma beyond just the characters and, and to the, the shards themselves. Like I love the, I, I still love the moment where Sion is defeated via bullying. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's like, that's like taking the metaphor and exploring it from all angles. And so this idea of recovery and taking that and not just exploring that within our characters in general, but using the shards, as a much more broader explanation or, or, or uh, examination of recovery is an interesting idea that, that what these shards need to do now is get better. Um, and, and what, what would that look like? I think that is an interesting path to, to think about. Yeah. 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 All right. Next up, Sarah Penguin thinks uh, that waste has shown us what the shards want. Most is an identity. And she compares, um, the the identities of all the different members of Breakthrough and how how that they're doing a similar thing. They're looking for identity. So Victoria, she's cycling through different identities and she has to try to find one that fits her. She has to deal with not being able to identify with herself when she disassociates. Swan Song is a part of her recovery is establishing a new identity away from a terrifying villain persona, and she has become more so Swan Song. She seems to be much calmer and more stable. Sveta. Uh, Cauldron took her identity from both her physically and mentally. And after what went down with the irregular, she almost, she also lost most of the camaraderie from the people with her shared trauma. Uh, Byron, his trigger event was over a fight about Tristan stealing his identity. And then he has to deal with it 
with trying to have his own identity while trapped inside someone else. Tristan, same as Byron, but with the added issue of being gay, he has to deal with people like Paris who are willing to attack him and people he cares about. Rain, his trauma is being raised and abused by a cult, and part of his recovery is forging his own identity, not one that was forced on him. Chris, he's dealing with the identity of Lab Rat versus Chris and trying to make himself feel like himself. And then Kenzie seems to have more of an issue with the lack of identity. Kenzie seems to formulate her entire personality around the person she is with. She even changes her cape name last minute, um, and that shows she's changing her identity to make one person happy. So yeah, I mean, like this general idea that everyone in Breakthrough is having their own kind of version of an identity crisis. They are searching for who they are and what that means. And and through Waste, that is exactly what we saw the Shard is doing too. The Shard wants its own identity. And and that could be hinting at what mo- most of the Shards want. Like, remember, we only have these two things to compare. So we have Victoria Shard, we have Marcha Shard. We know one is lost and searching for identity. We know the other seems pretty confident in what it is. Um, maybe Victoria Shard is more representative of what they all feel like. Um, and then everyone is searching for identity as these shards are as well. I like that. Yeah, it's really, really awesome how well that fits. How, how Man, there's just so much going on with these characters. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's because they're complex, three-dimensional characters with, with lots of different facets of everything this book is talking about mixed in there. Yep. Uh, so last six, five, seven says uh, these shard POVs are not saying anything about different ways trauma can manifest. I say this because I don't think these are shard POVs. The POVs are from the interfaces between shards and hosts. The perspective is too much like a person to be the shards. These perspectives seemed more human, uh, human like than either of the in- entity interludes. And they were, and they were making themselves human like the, the, the entities were making themselves human like. Yeah. Um, but see, I mean, see, I, th- I think that's the the whole thing is like, like, like Glastigwenye said, like the, the shards become the masks, like they're, they're just as influenced by the people as the people are by them. I think, I think that's true. Like Scion didn't have a human he was attached to. Yeah. He was just a, 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 computer. a facsimile. Yeah. A, 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 and even, and even that was only sort of part of what he was. So I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like this is literal textual evidence that yes, um, the shards are becoming more like their hosts as their hosts become kind of more like them. And it's, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I agree. I think like, I, I agree with, with last five or six, five, seven, that, um, these perspectives seem way more human like than either of the entity did entity interludes showed them even, even the one where, um, where the thinker like moves into the the future yeah. and see and how she behaves in the future. Um, I totally agree that, that the shards are way more human than those were, but I'm with you. And I think that's the point like that. I think that that's, that's what this is showing that, that being attached to these humans being separated from their network and, and only networking with the human that they're, they're a host of, um, is, is making them more human. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's interesting, like a point of view, of the interface between the shards and the host would be an interesting thing, but um, I don't know. I, I think, I think these are, these are the shards. Yeah. All right. And finally we have to Sarwat um, who focuses on March because her shard echoes her trauma in a particularly tragic way. Um, they wrote a very long post, so we're just going to try to kind of go through the abridged version of it. Um, from her interlude, we see how stifled may was controlled by her mother, bullied 
into a hectic yet efficient life that gave her virtually no time for personal development or individual expression. Then her mother dies. Her dream is realized. She's free. But the first thing she does is follow the schedule laid out for her, traveling alone to the music school that she has an appointment with. Now March will never have freedom. She has an entirely new controller now. She belongs to the shard. She is theirs. Um, and they go through all the ways in which this is this is kind of shown out in in March's character. And they conclude with the real tragedy of March isn't that her dream is impossible. It's that she escapes from her mother's control by being overtaken by something far worse. The schedule is just inside her now. Um, I, I love I love that. I love that explanation. The schedule is inside her now. It's like it was an external force and now it is just her. Yeah. Uh, right. And I, I love I love this idea that like on top of like you look at March and you see chaos and you see like madness and just whatever um it is it is very kind of joker like where the joker's like i'm just doing all this crazy stuff but underneath all of that there is a higher purpose there is planning there is strategy like we know that like how her power works is just like coordination to like the the nth degree right Right. so like what comes off as like mad nonsense freedom of to do whatever you want is actually this tightly tightly controlled regimented life um and and with her shard perspective, we see that that's the truth. She belongs to them. Our little March. Um, I think that's great. Yeah, no, I, I love the schedules inside of her. And that reminds me that the shard accessed her memories of her mother to find words that it wanted to use. Yeah. It's like yeah. It's, it's even manifesting her mother specifically. Yep. Yep. Uh, uh, that sucks. Yeah, right. All right. Um, so discussion question for next week um, is who's your favorite pair of humans character who would have been a faceless background character in a lesser story? What yeah. So someone that no other that another story would not have spent any time focusing on at all, but uh, that these stories actually did take the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of loosely worded so that it can be loosely interpreted. So as we do, as we do. All right. All right. So March Madness round one results, Scott. Yeah. So all the results, if you haven't, if you haven't checked it out, all the results can be found at www.doofmedia.com slash March Madness. Um, you, if you look at the uh, brackets themselves, the scores are the percentage of uh, votes that went to each character. So you can see that there um, because there were 32 matchups in the first round. We are not going to go through all 32 of them one by one. There's just too many. We will do this as the brackets shrink down as we get closer to the end. But for now, we're just going to like highlight some of the biggest surprises um, or interesting things that happen in this first round. So we can just go back and forth. Matt. Sure. Uh, so number one, um, the memes lose. Yeah. Uh, people were very worried about like the sleeper and Emma being included in the bracket uh, because apparently these are like meme picks and the memes are just going to win out just because memes and memes. Um, <laughs> that didn't happen. Tattletail destroyed Emma with 95% of the total vote. And our girl Victoria took down the sleeper with 64% of the vote. Yeah, people were really worried about this. Um, there, I, I intentionally did Dragon versus uh, Saint as well, um, just for the fun of that. Uh-huh. And people were like, oh, no, Saint's going to win because people are going to want to meme it. That didn't happen either. Um, so I think the one the, the best thing about this bracket is it has conclusively proven that uh, that Saint was wrong. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. Right. All right. Um, next up. 
Everybody hates Brian. <laughs> so every single member of the Undersiders advanced to the second round, except for our man Gru, who only got 29% of the vote to Miss Militia's 71%. Sorry, Brian. You're dead. Uh, poor Brian. Again. Again. Um, next, uh, I'm Kid Win, and I'm here to kid lose. <laughs> or, I'm here to lose, was the original quote. Kid Win goes down... <laughs> In the first round to Lung, uh, Lung picked up 69% of the vote. Nice. Uh, um, <laughs> with uh, Against Kid, win- Kid Wins, 31%. Yeah, I really expected this one to be closer. I wasn't sure if I, I voted for Kid Win. I think you did as well. Um, I expected expected him to do a little bit better yeah. here. It was, it was a bummer. See, I just couldn't bring myself to vote against him. That was why. But anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For Kid Win. Yeah. Uh, and last, we had just a few upsets in the first round not too many i think we seeded rather well the biggest upset of them all was the number six seeded alexandria lost to the 11th seeded echidna this was the closest match of the round matt with noel getting 52 percent of the vote to alexandria's 48 percent. i think there was less than 50 votes that separated these two in the end but uh um alexandria lost and noel moves on to the second round that was really surprising i didn't expect that yeah it's one of those tough ones i mean as i'm looking over these upsets they're all what i would consider to be tough you know tough picks and because the next one is going to break your poor heart matt okay Uh, seventh seeded trickster lost out to the 10th seeded leviathan Uh, you just Uh, can't beat these giant kaiju you just can't do it so brutal this wasn't even a particularly close matchup matt um 32% 32% of the vote went to Trickster. That's all he got. 32%. So, man. Sorry, buddy. People don't like Kraus. Oh, man. I'm really <laughs> mad. I'm really mad now. Really upset about this. I don't think you are. <laughs> and lastly, the last upset of the bracket of the first round was 10th seeded Dinah takes down the golden god Scion, who was the seventh seed. This was another close ish match uh with Dinah getting 57% of the vote to Scion's 43%. Sorry Golden Boy. You got bullied again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I, I like that matchup just because it's clever. <laughs> uh Yeah, Dinah won. Dinah won again. Dinah won again. She's always winning. All right, Scott. Uh round 2 picks. We got 16 matches in round 2. So All right. let's just let's just do it. All right, so let's start in the uh, Aleph region with uh, our first matchup, Skitter versus Jack Slash. Who you got, Matt? Um, Skitter. Yeah, this is a uh, <laughs> this is an easy choice for me as well. Taylor is. Uh, what, what is what is your methodology for this? Because we kind of intentionally left it open. I mean, mostly I'm going with like, what is the character who I just find more interesting? Um, and yeah. and sometimes that's actually very close. So then it comes down to things like, okay, well, who do I like more? Mm-hmm. Um, which usually has a clearer answer anyway. So yeah, like, that's like this next one, Jessica Yamada versus Idolan. Uh, I find them both really interesting. Um, I, I think I think I'm more interested in the concept of uh, a parahuman therapist. So that's what the one I would go with. Ah, I voted for Idolan here. Okay. Um, I love Jessica Yamada, but I, 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 David's arc throughout the story is one of my favorite things about it. I just love, I love this idea of the all powerful, um, hero who still feels like they can't, they're not, they're not strong enough. Um, that's really appealing to me. Yeah. And, uh, 
It's very sad. All right. Well, I guess we cancel each other out on that one. Yeah, there you go. Uh, next up, we have Clockbocker versus Miss Militia. Ooh, this is going to be a tough one, Matt. Yeah. I think this is going to be really close. Yeah, I, th- I think I just have a very special place in my heart for Dennis. So I, I voted for Clockbocker on this one. I voted for Clockbocker as well. Okay. Um, I, I love Dennis. I, I loved his character. Um, Miss Militia, I think she's interesting, but like, I don't know. I just the story had just so much less to do with her yeah. at times. I feel like we um, meet her in a later point in her journey of life, whereas Clockblocker is going through so much more uh, hectic things. Um, just, there just seems to be more going on with him in general. Yeah, I agree. Next, uh, 12 of, of the Aleph bracket, uh, Contessa versus Echidna. So our surprise... Uh, Noel made it to the second round and now they're up against Contessa. This is a tough matchup for poor Noel. Yeah. Um, who are you going to go with in this one? I, th- I think I'm going to have to go with Contessa. I, I find her character and her power fascinating. And a lot of what's going on with Noel is not focused. Uh, I don't know how to, how to say it exactly. For for me, everything going on with all of the travelers is kind of subsumed under the umbrella of of Kraus, uh, because he's the one telling the story, which is maybe unfair to them as characters, but that's just kind of how my brain does it. So I'm going to pick Contessa. Okay. Yeah. Um. Um. Uh, I'm I'm going to pick Contessa, but if this was Alexandria versus Contessa, I would have picked Alexandria. Yeah. So. Um, I think I think I agree with you that in in this matchup, um, I think the character that I'm just more interested in is is Fortuna and everything that she went through. Um, not not to say that Noel isn't a fascinating character, but I, I agree with I agree with you that we kind of are more focused on Kraus because um, he's a person that focuses on himself. Yeah, you could say. right. You know, another way of framing how I'm going through this could be to say like, which one of the characters would I be? Uh, much more upset about if they were like not in the story, if they had been like magically taken out of the story. Um, yeah, I mean because that is what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, who, the the loser of this vote uh-huh. uh, doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, they're, they're gone. They're gone. Yep, they're gone. Uh, Earth bet round two. Uh, Tattletail versus Lung. Yeah, it's Tattletail. Tattletail. I mean, let's just move Crushes on. It. <laughs> yeah. Lung is great. Tattletail is is better. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have uh, Bitch versus Weld. Um, I am not not voting for Rachel ever in this tournament, so <laughs> this was an easy decision for me. Yeah, it's similar to my logic as well, I think. Um, I mean, I like Weld a lot. That's that, 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 This is a hard matchup, honestly. Um, well, I like Weld a lot too, but yeah. I, I, not, not Rachel level. Maybe more accurate to say it, it felt like it should have been a hard matchup, but I was just like, no, I'm just, just not going to vote for Weld over Rachel. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, round two. Uh, two of of bet uh, defiant versus accord. Uh, defiant. Um, I I like accord so much better than I did the first chapter we met him in, where I called him a Bond villain that was silly. Um, but but Colin has one of the most satisfying arcs throughout the story. Um, I I find him fascinating and deep and wonderful, and I I can't not vote for him in this matchup. I think I'm gonna vote for accord here. Hold up. He's just, he's just such a, he's just one of my favorite of the like interestingly fucked up parahumans characters. Colin's great. 
got nothing specific against Collins, but Accord Accord is God, I just love his interlude so much. I'm I'm not mad. <laughs> I'm just really disappointed. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. All right, the final matchup in Earth Bet is Bonesaw versus Legend. I feel like we might have another disagreement here. <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna vote for, Matt? I think I'm gonna vote for Bonesaw here. Yeah, we're gonna have a disagreement. In terms of in terms <laughs> I'm of like we're canceling each other. Interesting out. characters who I just can't do without and and who like almost make the story be what it is. You you, you can't look much farther than Bonesaw. Yeah, but a counterpoint. Uh-huh. He move. He's he's fast moving laser yeah, man. Yeah. See, see, you like the good guys. I'm I'm, underst- <laughs> I'm understanding one of the major differences between us is you're on the good guys side. Yeah, I mean, I I like I I loved Bonesaw's like I loved the her interlude so much. I mean, like that this the the shockingness of the of the reveal of who she is and why she is the way she is 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 really really great. Um, but. He's he's a he's a fun laser man. Okay, he lasers. I respect I respect your choices. <laughs> Next, uh, Earth Gimmel, um, Dragon versus Foil. Um, yeah, tough one. People really like Foil. I think this is going to be closer than it normal. I think this is going to be closer than just about any versus dragon matchup uh hmm. this earlier in the this early in the tournament um, yeah but i think dragon's gonna win and i voted for dragon. yeah i voted for dragon too i i i mean yeah i, I just dragon's like very fascinating concept mm-hmm. and especially how she's executed yeah uh uh glass versus vista tough one matt tough one i voted for this yeah i think i voted for vista again because i'm still mourning <laughs> um so i was just like yeah i i like i really like everything that's going on with valkyrie especially if you include ward Here, <laughs> of course part of the reason but i'm voting you? for vista is that i'm also including ward yeah which i'm not supposed to be let's just let's just move past this one i like valkyrie as a character um i'm very interested to see where ward goes with her i was never like in love with glastic yuanye yeah um, I just, I was never as interested in that character. I think like, I'm not saying she's a bad character. It's just, I was less interested in her, um, in that, that early in, in uh, who sh- the, I can't talk anymore. Um, Vista, Vista. <laughs> Agree. All right. Regent versus Dinah. You know who I picked. You picked Regent. Regent's one of your favorite characters. Yes. Um, I picked Regent as well. I, I like Dinah a lot, but Regent ha- has is such a satisfyingly fascinating character, um, and I, I, I love him. Yeah, and you know, I feel like there's a lot going on with Dinah that we're not privy to because she kept away from Taylor. Um, yeah, we, we did get an interview uh, interlude with her, but it was when she was it was kind of before she came into her own. Um, and it wasn't really about her as much as it was about like what's going on with Coil's everything. Um, yeah. So we just don't know that much about her, and and I, I wonder if we're gonna find out more about her before Ward ends, like who she is, you know, really, rather than just mysterious predictor. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Number Man versus Garot, Sveta. Uh, Sveta, dude, 
look, here's the thing about Number Man. I never liked him that much. Like, I, people seem to love Number Man, and I'm just like, I just don't like that type of character very much. I'm just like, eh, you're you're okay, I guess. Um, Sveta all the way. I think way. if I fall back on my who would I be much sadder if they weren't in the story rubric, then I'd, then I'd go with Sveta too. Yeah. I I, th- I think Number Man is, is interesting, but he's almost too put together and sure of himself to be uh to be like a tip top uh dramatic character right he's just like well of course i have the right thing to do yeah i think i think you're right i think that's putting words to why i am less interested in that type of character yeah earth shin the final region and the first matchup is imp our number one seed imp versus parian what did you pick here man yeah uh, I agree. I, I I like Saba so much, but you can't you can't beat Aisha. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's it's kind of always going to be the rationale <laughs> for me anyway. It's like, <laughs> he's better than Imp. Let's just say there's a reason why our number one seeds are the number one. Yeah, seeds. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, next one, uh, Victoria Dallin versus Chevalier. It's like designed to punish me. It's designed to punish me. I love here's here's the way i i was able to do this because we make our own rules in this in this bracket uh-huh. and i say i can't decide ergo i must do something and my decision to do something was let's just pretend i know nothing about ward victoria dallin and just just vote solely on worm and if i just vote solely on worm i have to vote for chevalier and so that's what i did yeah i definitely voted for victoria um i, I think honestly i never loved chevalier as much as you did not that get, not, get not out that, yeah I, get I, out not, not that i don't love his heroic scene um i don't know i'm probably allowing some some illegal i'm probably committing a technical foul here um <laughs> but you know the <laughs> there's definitely there's definitely justification for a, a lot going on under the surface with even glory girl and then she gets turned into a blob and then, you know, things. So, yeah. yeah. You know, two more technical fouls and you get uh, thrown out of the I, tournament. I know. Just- I know. I need to stop admitting that they're that, that I'm doing it and just lie. <laughs> uh, next one, uh, Panacea versus Leviathan. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to vote for any of the Endbringers in this tournament because while I find them fascinating um, as creatures in this world, I will always vote for a character over them. Yeah, I feel so. Uh, I voted for Amy. Yeah, ditto. Uh, and then the final matchup: uh, the Seamurg versus Golem. Come on, <laughs> that's Golem. I, I mean, I mean, the Seamurg is actually pretty. The Sim, the Seamurg is the most interesting inbringer because yes. she is the one who is plotting and planning and thinking in terms of people as being things to manipulate rather than things to squish. Um, but come on, it's Golem. I I agree. I voted for Golem. All right. Um, so this it's getting hard, Matt. Next next week we will be on the Sweet 16. There will only be 16 characters left, and they will be all pitted against each other. Um, and it's going to be tough. If you look at the bracket, you can see what what the matchups are going to be, um, or, or what we think they're going to be, and it's going to be tough stuff. Yeah. So. Uh, keep voting. If you haven't voted already, go to doofmedia.com slash March Madness and do that right now. You have until Sunday 
at 11 o'clock, uh, 12 o'clock Eastern time. And then uh, the votes for the Sweet 16 will be out not much longer after that. And uh, we will go over the results of this round next week on the show and then uh, pick our, our Sweet 16 picks as well. And, and don't forget, when you vote, uh, leave comments because we will be reading some of those comments as we go through the results of last round. Yep. That's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter account at gotwormpod. It's also where you can find uh, my weekly live reads of all the new chapters and uh, any scheduling changes that we have to go through can always be found there. So make sure you follow that account. Yeah. Um, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms. Uh, so go uh, go do that. Yeah, and always you can find all the other shows we do along with this one over at doofmedia.com. Um, you can see our other weekly shows, Deep Impact, Vow to View, and the Doofcast, which this week we'll be talking about Captain Marvel. That's right. We're going to do one of those new movie reviews we haven't yeah, done in a while. topical movie review. Yeah, getting those clicks. Mm -hmm, mm. <laughs> That's right. And if uh, you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our fan art and costume contests, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent Discord chat. Special thanks this week to New Bidoof's Event Horizon and Lelouch Lamparouge at the one dollar level thanks thanks y'all uh it's, it's awesome we really appreciate that yeah thank you guys so much thank you every single one of you who continues to support us each month and each week we really appreciate yeah. it and as always make sure you head on over to wildbo's patreon page patreon.com slash wildbo donate to him as well because this is his world we're just playing in it and if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. There are tons of way you can, ways you can help us out. One of those big ways is heading on over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating and a review. Each and every review we get helps other people find and listen to our podcast. Uh, this week's review comes from I Am Not Faust, who gives us five stars and says, A fantastic literary analysis about a superhero web serial. Scott and Matt dive into the themes, trials, and tribulations about the characters in the Parahumans universe. The source material, Worm and Ward, are of course credible, incredible, <laughs> but I don't think I would have appreciated the depth of material without We've Got Worm. While I haven't listened to We've Got Ward in a while, have to wait for a backlog to binge nonstop for weeks straight, I know when I come back, Scott and Matt will bring their insight and enthusiasm to my reading. It feels like you're sharing your favorite novel with literature professors, or at least their TAs. I'll take I'll take TAs. Yeah. I'll take that. Don't call me professor. I'll take TA. Yeah, that's, that sounds reasonable. Thank you so much. I am not Faust. We really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you who take the time to leave us those rating and reviews. Yes, yes. Um, I am not Faust, one of our longtime uh, contributors to um, so-called writers, the currently uh, on hiatus show. Can we still say that? <laughs> <laughs> on hiatus for 18 months. Uh, all right, that's all for this week. Uh, next week, we'll be back with more of Arc 12 Heavens. Cradle time. I really want him to say, from the cradle to the grave. Oh, and Victoria says that just as she fires the rocket launcher. Wait, she's got a rocket launcher now? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>